gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So first of all, uh, the first thing I got to let you know is that uh, I'm recording this on my normal sort of backup system without all the right equipment. So if I sound bad, I apologize. Um, We are figuring out the right travel mic. Uh, There's just just been some hiccups and um, some complications. Which brings me to the second point. Um, I apologize for not having the Wednesday G file. Um, I got some stuff. I can't get into specifics. I just got some personal stuff going on. I'm on the road. And um, I'm not even sure when I'll be back in D.C. So um, things are going to be a little more sort of catch as catch can and haphazard. Um, And, uh, you know, more about that uh, later. It's just it's a personal thing. So I'm just not going to talk about it any more than that. so, uh, where to begin? Um, well, I got to say, so, you know, I have lots of different desires for this podcast. You know, I always have. I've wanted it to be simultaneously. I, I wanted it to be more like the G-File um, than it is, but that's hard to do um, for all sorts of reasons, Um because even though I sort of do the G file on the fly, you can go back, you know, I, I still rewrite things, you know, even though, I, you know, you know, 999 out of every thousand G files is written the day they're due is, 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 you know, from beginning to end and, and in about three or four hours or something like that, um, you know, that's a different, it's just a different process. You can move paragraphs around. You can delete something that was stupid. And when you're talking, and particularly when you're having conversations with other people, uh, it just doesn't work the same way. So you can't make it, you can make it much weirder and funnier and eclectic and all that kind of stuff. But then it also just take a lot more time in, in production and in post-production and um, can't do that. And so... On the other hand, you know, uh, with my expectations for the for this podcast, I also wanted to be serious, you know, and have serious conversations and conversations that you can't find other places um, on topics that you're not going to find most other places. And, um, you know, and those, that mix of serious and, and self-indulgent can work in print in ways that doesn't entirely work for a podcast. Um, and... Uh, Anyway, I thought my conversation um, with Yuval was uh, the, uh, the, on the latest normal episode of Remen was about as close as to the kind of conversations I wanted to have when I launched this thing. Um, um, I don't think it's any secret to anybody how much I, ad- I admire Yuval um, and sort of rely on him as a sort of stabilizing intellectual force. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I just, I got a lot out of it. It's the first, I haven't listened to it. I don't know. I don't ever really listen to my podcast or watch myself on TV, but, um, uh, there's just some stuff that I, I want to go back and visit. So I'm actually going to re-listen to it and I'm sure it wasn't for everybody, but that's fine. But I just got a lot out of it and I got a lot off my chest, um, that I don't think I've talk too much about before. There are some things I've talked about a zillion times, but you get it. So why don't we start with some of that? One of the things we didn't get into, um, which I meant to, you know, Burke has this, one of his key, Edmund Burke, uh, widely considered the father of Anglo-American conservatism. Um, though there are, there, there are some, what I believe to be cockamamie arguments about, uh, how because from the nationalist guys who say that it wasn't Burke or whatever, I have no problem with people saying it's not Burke. You know, you can point to other people if you want. I got no problem with people pointing to, um, you know, John Locke, Adam Smith, um, uh, John Adams. I mean, there are all sorts of arguments about where at least American conservatism can trace itself back to. Um, I personally think it actually 
is a much more recent vintage than all of that. And we can get to that in a second, I guess, if I remember to get back to it. Um, but anyway, one of the things Evan Burke talks about is, and it's a big part of his indictment of the French Revolution, is this idea that no one can be a judge in his own cause. And, you know, this is a very sort of clever way of getting at all, a, a number of sort of fundamental insights about human nature, about what a just society looks like, um, and how to think about politics. And one of the things I sort of wanted to get Yuval's read on, and I'll now I'll just have to chase him down at AI and talk to him about it, um, is I think that one of the problems with the right these days and with the left, um, again, I, I'm a, I'm a both sidesism guy um, through and through, even if I think there are, you know, important differences. There are important differences between the Hatfields and McCoys, too. Um, but uh, I, I think the vast majority of our problems in politics are America's problems and not just the right's problems and not just the left's problems. I, I've long made this argument, and I still believe it, that the paranoid style in American politics is the paranoid style in American politics. And, uh, and so in some ways, the Richard Hofstetter headline, the title of that essay, um, is more accurate than the argument. Because what Hofstetter and a lot of people have done have, have basically said is that, you know, paranoia is a right, paranoia in America, conspiratorial thinking in America is a right wing phenomenon. And it's just not, it is, a it's an American phenomenon, and um, we actually know that it's a human phenomenon because America is not particularly uh, an outlier on conspiratorial thinking. It's kind of in the in the mainstream. Every country in the world, every society world, has all sorts of uh, conspiratorial quirks to it. Um, anyway, I keep getting distracted. I'm sorry. Uh, the this point about you can't be a judge in your own cause. Um, it's not just a single, you know, the, 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 the obvious point is, is that, you know, you're, everyone's biased about their own, you know, wants and desires. And, you know, you wouldn't, I mean, to take the phrase literally, um, you wouldn't want someone, a, a, an Olympic ice skater, uh, figure skater, to also be allowed to be a judge um, of, figure skating at the Olympics. You wouldn't want a murderer in a murder case be allowed to be the actual sitting judge in a murder case, right? It's just like we we are all biased towards what we want. And it's not always uh, conscious bias. It's, um, it's sometimes it's, it's, it's bias that we have, uh, have trouble seeing in ourselves. And, but more broadly, it's not, this is not just simply an individual phenomenon, right? This is not just true of us as people. I think it's true of movements and groups. I think one of the things plaguing big chunks of the right these days is very much like the Jacobins and the French Revolution is large numbers of people on the right do not accept the legitimacy um, or the relevance of opinions of people who aren't part of the sort of the, the, the right wing mob. And so, and it, there's this certain kind of catch 22 phenomenon going on where if you are part of the right and you make a judgment about the right's behavior that the crowd doesn't like, then ipso facto, you are declaring you're no longer part of the right and therefore your judgment no longer matters. And, I think that this is one of these problems that really defines the the pathologies and the or the ethos of of radicalism wherever it appears. Um, and I think it's somewhat downstream and um, reflective of the cult of unity. You know, when the French revolutionaries uh, they rejected all these notions of like checks and balances um, and relied on their own independent authority or, or look at today's, you know, Chinese communist party, the Chinese communist party recognizes no outside authority 
um, whatsoever. If if an institution has authority, it has authority because it is is an extension of the Chinese Communist Party, and um, and this is why you know it's a sort of a it's sort of an obvious rule of thumb in political science that I don't think occurs to everybody, but um, countries with only one party can't be democracies um, because the whole point of uh, as a, just as a practical matter, if you only have one party, then the party basically controls the government and um, you're not going to actually have fruitful um, elections of any kind because the the party is going to pick all the available candidates um, that are eligible to vote um, or or that and certainly eligible to win. And I, I think you see this a lot on the right where there's this sort of radical sort of point of view that says we don't seek the approval of or care about the concerns of people who aren't with us and, and who don't share our values. And some of this, I think, is long in the making, and it's part of this Alinsky envy stuff I've been writing and talking about for a long time. But I think some of it is... Um, kind of psychological transference from Trump. And, um, you know, because, you know, remember when William Barr looked into all of the uh, allegations about voter fraud and he came back to Trump and Trump said, so, you know, did you find any fraud or corruption? And he said, in effect, um, we didn't find any. It's all BS. Um, and certainly none of it rose to the level of systemic and in, in, in the way that would be required to say that the election was stolen. And Trump's immediate response was, you must hate Trump, right? That somehow there is this, that your position on, on, on concrete facts is, um, sorry, my wife is texting me about stuff. Uh, I'll ignore it. No, that, that, you're, that sort of Trump's feelings are more important than objective reality and that there is no, it's that catch-22 thing, right? There is no legitimate, authorized, independent arbiter of facts if that arbiter of facts delivers facts that Trump didn't want to hear. And so the only thing that makes facts real are the facts that he wants to hear, even when they're not facts, right? So like remember from the first impeachment, all Trump wanted was a statement from the Ukrainian government that they were investigating corruption. Um, and then Trump would use that as um, all the leverage he needed. And the, for the January 6th stuff, um, or for the stolen election stuff, Trump's just kept telling people, look, all I need you to say is that they're was corruption or that you're investigating corruption and I'll do the rest. Um, and I think that this is this kind of thinking um, is just all over the place. And, it, and again, I think it exists um, to a certain extent on the left too. Certainly the, the sort of radical kind of thinking exists on the left, but I think the, the weird psychological um, uh, deformities imposed by the cult of personality of Trump are one of the things that give asymmetry between left and right. Uh, anyway, it's something I wanted to talk talk to you all about more. Is just this idea that movements can think they're the only judge that matters in their own cause, um, and that gives you permission to do all sorts of horrendous things and say horrendous things and reject facts in all sorts of ways because there is no legitimizing independent authority that can tell you to cool it. And, um, um, anyway, so I think it's, 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 it's an idea worth exploring more. Um, what else is it? So yeah, so I was in Grove city as you know, and, um, or maybe you don't know, um, I was in Grove city giving a speech. It was kind of funny. Um, uh, former, uh, Intern for the dispatch, really great kid. Um, he's also on the AI council at um, 
at Grove City, a guy named um, Isaac Wallure, he organized having me come out there and give this talk. He kind of screwed me a little bit. I mean, we were joking about it um, because, or at least I, maybe I just messed it up myself but and misheard, but I was under the impression that they really didn't want me to talk about Trump at all, um, or at least very, very little. Um, and and so I prepped this long. It could be like 3,000 words, so I'm going to have to do something with it. Um, essay kind of talk. Like I, I very rarely write out speeches, but I, you know, first of all, if it's if it has to be on sort of a newish or different topic, um, then I kind of need to do it to sort of think through what I think. Um, and also, I just sort of was looking forward to the idea of giving a more sort of academicy kind of talk. Um, but then I see that like the the night before, I see the actual two days before, I see the t- title of this thing and it was conservatism in the age of Trump. And so, um, I ended up going a different way, but that's how I got onto this Burke stuff and wanted you all on is because I was thinking about, um, because I was reading up on Burke. I also have to say, I finally, after years of being pestered, uh, by another friend, um, I will not use his name, but he knows who he is. He's, he's Lionel Mandrake on Twitter. Uh, um, uh, to embrace um, Michael Oakeshott over a lot of the other sort of conservative philosophical lodestars um, of American conservatism. I'm finally coming around to his point of view on some of this stuff. I've always liked Oakeshott from what I've read. You know, I like rationalism and politics and I, I, I like this point, which is very much like being a judge in your own cause thinking um, his point about, you know, rejecting uh, politics as the crow flies in other in, in other words you know trying to go sh- from point a to point b in the shortest fastest uh most direct route possible is not really how life works i, I like that stuff um but it's his his point about enterprise associations versus civil associations i don't know for whatever reason it just recently sort of clicked for me maybe because i am myself trying to escape the left-right divide, since my contempt is really not um, unidirectional anymore. And um, anyway, I, mean, I wrote about it a week ago. Um, we don't have to dwell on it here, but just in case you're not a G-File subscriber for some some horrible, deranged, psychopathic reason, Oakshot makes this point that there are basically like two kinds of organization. Um, uh, for all, to be fair, for all I know, he thinks there are lots of different kinds of organization, but the two relevant kinds of organization in terms of politics are uh, civic or civil associations. I can't remember if it's civic or civil. I think it's civil. Um, and enterprise um, associations. And enterprise associations cover almost every institution that pops into your head when you talk about important institutions. Corporations, small businesses, um, churches, uh, Boy Scouts. Um, you know, you can just go down the, the army. Um, and to be sure, various arms of the, go- bureaucratic arms of the government, including, you know, the army, which is, not supposed to be that bureaucratic, but it's certainly an arm of the government. Um, these are enterprise associations where, I'm sorry, I have to drink a lot of coffee, um, where you're joining for, um, you're, jo- you're, you're admitted to an organization, right? You have to, um, you have to be hired by it um, or drafted into it or whatever. Um, you're joining an organization uh, that has a specific purpose. It has deliverables. Um, and those deliverables can be everything from uh, making widgets to making profits to saving souls. But there's a, there's a specific, relatively narrow purpose to the institution. And then there's the civil association, which is much more like de Tocqueville in America, right? It's, uh, it's an organization that you belong to, um, that you're you're sort of a, a willful member of, 
And the civic the civil association concept is that it doesn't have deliverables. It doesn't have um, it doesn't concern itself with profit. It doesn't concern itself with telling people how to perform certain functions and and why they should be doing it. Rather, it is trying to create a safe rules-based order for everybody to do, for all those enterprise associations to do what they do and for individuals to do what they want. Um, it has certain expectations, you know, sort of like a little bit like a, a homeowner's association, you know, like you have to keep, you have to behave in a certain way. But most of it is, is it's a um, expectation. Uh, most of the expectations are about keeping the rules fair for everybody, right? So like in the, in the G file, I used this analogy. I don't think it's that strained. It's a little bit like um, Major League Baseball. Uh, the Yankees are an enterprise association. They are determined, they, their deliverables are wins, right? Wins and ratings, but basically wins. There's a part of Major League Baseball that's also an enterprise, you know, thing about profits for the owners and all of that kind of stuff. But there's also part of it that is just simply about ensuring the integrity of the game, making sure that everybody agrees to the rules, that the rules are followed and enforced. And, you know, in a broad sense, let's call it, forget Major League Baseball, the institution of baseball itself doesn't care who wins and who loses so long as the game is played fairly. Oakshot's analogy is sort of like a ship that never goes into port. And the whole point of a civil association is just to keep, keep the ship going and steady and um, nothing else. I don't like that metaphor that much, but um, I think there are probably better ones if we wanted to think about it. But I think that this is a better way of thinking about politics, at least in a whole bunch of historical contexts and, um, and to a certain extent to today. People know, or at least a lot of people listening know, that I have um, major objections to the way we talk about fascism as being this inherently and obviously right-wing thing. Um, if you actually believe that public policy has a moral component, that public policy matters, um, there's a lot of left-wingery to fascism. But I've learned the hard way that this is an argument I'm not going to, I'm not going to win on anytime soon, at least not with a large number of people. But this Oakshadian way of thinking about things kind of solves a little bit of that problem because you can call fascism right-wing. And obviously there are, you know, depending on what you mean by right-wing, there are lots of right-wing elements um, to fascism or to, to certain uh, instances of fascism. But if you want to get rid of the left right-wing thing instead of do this enterprise versus civil association thing, um, the problem with fascism, communism, dictatorship, Jacobinism, all sorts of left and right wing, as the vernacular calls it, all sorts of tyrannical or despotic governments is that they run society like they're enterprise associations, right? They run society like every citizen works for the state. They run society like there are deliverables and that um, people should be directed into living the right way according to the precepts of the of the party or the government or 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 the or the throne and um you don't have to get into the ideological content um or the aesthetic uh accoutrement of of the state apparatus um you know you can talk about um calvin's geneva you can talk about uh, Mussolini's Italy, you can talk about Hitler's Germany, you can talk about Stalin's Russia, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un's North Korea. These are all closed system states that are run like enterprise associations where every institution must be loyal to the central command. And I think that's a useful way to sort of start clawing your way out of the left-right thing. Oh, a couple of people sent me this th this piece at the Federalist. I don't normally read the Federalist. It's this kind of fun, like, you know, there's this, it's kind of a funny piece and I don't disagree with everything in it. I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm in a mood where I don't really want to be too snarky towards anybody, but you know, there's this scene, was it men in black 
where um uh what's his face the guy who puts on the edgar suit right uh the alien the giant bug alien comes to earth and this uh jackass hillbilly kind of guy comes out to the crater with his shotgun and the alien voice yells drop your weapon and the and the wife beating uh jackass says you can have my gun over my cold dead body or something like that uh, or you can pry my gun from my cold dead hands or something like that and the alien says um i accept your terms and kills the guy and takes his gun and his skin suit um anyway the reason i bring it up is there's this piece by this guy i just called it up john daniel davidson i don't really know who he is uh but apparently he's, i mean he's a senior editor at the federalist but i i can't i don't know that i've read him before and he says, and the title of it is, we need to stop calling ourselves conservatives. And then he runs through a lot of arguments that obviously I disagree with. He also makes some points that I, you know, I agree with, or I certainly think are perfectly defensible. And then, of course, he name checks the guys at Compact Magazine and talks about how we need to be radicals or revolutionaries or rest restorationists and yada, yada, yada. But if the people who find, you know, the the new nationalists and the post-liberal integralists and the pro-life new dealers and all of these, you know, all of this crap. If they want to stop calling themselves conservatives and call themselves one of those other things instead, I accept your terms. That would be great. You know, I mean, I've spent five years now fretting that I may have to give up the term conservative entirely. Um, it'd be great if they abandoned the term. Um, it'd also be great, great, you know, if we could sort of recapture what liberalism is supposed to be and call progressives progressives. Although I think the libertarians generally have dibs. If we ever can, if the left can ever relinquish its hold on the word liberal, I think the libertarians called it first. Um, oh, hey, talk about uh, uh, whatever the right word is that I'm about to use to describe, or that I should use to describe this moment. Um, I remembered that I said I will come back to this thing um, if I remember it. And this is a good place to come back to the thing that I said I would remember. There's a term for this. It's not a callback. It's, uh, anyway, I'm picking up the thread that I dropped earlier. I think conservatism, as, as we understand it, and as this Davidson guy, uh, Danielson, whatever, uh, um, broadly defines it, um, um, the conservatism of William F. Buckley, the conservatism of George Will, of, uh, of National Review, um, um, of Pat Buchanan before uh, the end of the Cold War. Um, that conservatism, I would argue, is among the most recent vintage ideological schools in American politics. Um, um, among the only ones that are newer are, I, I guess, neoconservatism, if you want to um, describe it as, a, as an ideological school, which I think is, I guess, fair, um, and at least in this context. People know I have, I hold a lot of paper on the question of neoconservatism. And an even newer ideological camp is paleoconservatism. What a lot of people don't kind of understand about paleoconservatism is it was basically invented in the early 80s as a snarky, snarky rejoinder to neoconservatism. And their claim was, you know, the neocons have taken over the right, paleocons were the right before the neos came in. Uh, at the margins, there was some anti-Semitism and some other ugliness and um, and some paleocons really uh, were just full-flown racists and bigots, and some weren't. You know, you have to sort of be careful um, with some of these distinctions. Uh, but certainly, even the paleocons who weren't bigots and racists uh, had much less of a problem sharing a label, sharing a conference panel, um, sharing a cause with bigots and racists, and that was always a big problem for me. Um, but yeah, so the irony is that paleocons claim to be like inheritors of this very ancient tradition and all that. And in some intellectual sense, there's some truth to that. Because uh, a lot of them look to Europe as the 
as the home, the fons et origio of uh, true conservatism. And they, you know, they make that argument. But at the same time, as a political movement, uh, they're of much more recent vintage than, uh, than just conservatism or even neoconservatism. Um, and more importantly, and getting back to my point, libertarianism is much older than conservatism. I mean, you can go way back and, you know, forget Herbert Spencer. You can go way back to ancient Greeks and people were making arguments that were essentially libertarian arguments. This idea of the sovereign individual free of state, of the state, you know, there's the anarchist tradition. It goes way back. And, um, and for sort of obvious reasons, um, libertarianism, qua libertarianism, is not bound up or um, um, inherent to America. Sure, there's an American flavor of libertarianism. You might call it rugged individualism. Um, you might even just call it conservatism. Uh, that's what people did for a long time. Um, but because it says that the only political unit that matters is the individual for the most part, I mean, yeah, there's some communitarian types in the libertarian world too, but you get my point. Um, you can see how that's a transhistorical worldwide sort of thing. I don't know anything about ancient Chinese or ancient Indian uh, political philosophy at all, but it would not shock me in the slightest to find out that there were ancient libertarian Chinese and all that. But um, anyway, my argument about American conservatism is, well, I, I don't want to reprise this whole what is conservatism thing that I did um, for Grove City because I do want to clean it up and print it somewhere. But um, there are different kinds of conservatism. There's philosophical conservatism. This is my argument. Um, there's philosophical conservatism. There's temperamental conservatism. And there's American ideological conservatism. And I would argue that American ideological conservatism, um, and this is where I disagree a little bit with Continetti, um, although it's, you know, it's, a, it's a subtle distinction because you know, his book is called The Right. It's not necessarily called The Conservatives. Um, but, you know, he begins his book in um, 1920 in part to have this sort of century-long uh, storyline. And I just don't think that what the, the Buckleyite um, conservatism, National Review conservatism, uh, the conservatism, that the intellect, conservative intellect, I think George Nash is, is, is more right in the um, in his book Conservative Intellectual History since 1945, um, or the Conservative Intellectual Movement since 1945, insofar as I think that basically American conservatism, as as we've understood it until fairly recently, is a post World War II phenomenon. I think Russell Kirk was largely wrong. Um, great insights, great intellectual history, interesting things to say, interesting biographical stuff. I don't. I've never really loved Kirk's writing style. But um, his attempt to construct a conservatism, a coherent conservatism, um, going back to what the Adamses, um, is, I just think, is just flawed. It doesn't mean all of his insights are flawed or anything like that. But, uh, you know, Kirk liked to say that conservatism is a negation of ideology. Um, he got that line actually from H. Stewart Hughes, but um, he was fond of making that argument that conservatism is the opposite or the negation of ideology. And I write about this in my underrated second book, but I think this is just an incorrect analysis or incorrect understanding of what ideology is or, or should be. It's a little forgivable because when Kirk was saying some of this stuff, it was at a time when there were all these radical ideologies out there that were disconnected from the real world, that were full of abstractions, that seemed like neo-Jacobinism of one kind or another. And um, and Kirk considered himself a realist, even though he believed in all this stuff about ghosts. Um, and um, and so he was pushing back on on ideology as excess abstraction. And I think that's just wrong um, or the wrong way to think about ideology, or at the very least, if that's going to be, if your definition of ideology is going to be um, a grab bag of, of big abstractions, you're going to need some other word to do the job that I think ideology needs to do. And 
um, as Eric von Knut Ledeen was the first to point out, um, uh, if you look in German or if you look in a lot of dictionaries, uh, ideology and worldview are basically interchangeable terms. And I think that's much closer to the truth. Um, my own view of ideologies is that they're essentially checklists. They're checklists of principles. And one of the things that makes conservative ideology better than other ideologies, um, or at least a lot of other ideologies, is that conservatism, properly understood, under knows that um, you, can you can believe in principles that sometimes might be in conflict with each other. Um, you know, the right to um, free speech, the right to free association, the right to uh, self-defense, all of these things at some extreme or another can conceivably um, uh, come at the expense of other important rights. You know, I have the right to self-expression, but if I just scream obscenities out my window long enough, um, it's going to, you know, impose on, uh, you know, the tranquility of other people. You know, anyway, you can come up with all sorts of scenarios where, um, you know, rights can be in conflict. And this is, you know, this is my longstanding argument about how conservatism should be understood as comfort with contradiction. Um, and the thing I always loved about conservatism is that we acknowledge our dogmas and we are constantly revisiting our dogmas um, in part because we recognize that there are conflicts, that there are trade-offs, that um, not all good things go together. And, um, you know, and this debate gets called things like, you know, the, 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 the conflict between um, liberty and order, for, between freedom and virtue. Uh, American conservatism has always um, had a fundamental... Uh, epistemological or metaphysical or moral schism right down its heart, which is that its two uh, tent poles are um, faith and freedom, right? Or uh, uh, traditional values and individual liberty. And we all understand that at the margins, individual liberty can be in conflict with uh, traditional values. Um, and and to, the, to which I say, yeah, that's fine. Um, life is um, about adjusting, about, you know, uh, about dealing with reality and accepting that some change is necessary in order to, you know, um, conserve what needs to be conserved. I think American conservatism basically comes out of the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. And somewhere, I think it was in a Forbes essay 40 years ago, um, I remember reading it um, when I was working on something in the 90s uh, by Tom Sowell, where he says, um, it takes an ideology to beat an ideology. There was something galvanizing, something edifying, illuminating um, about the Cold War and about the starkness of our ideological opponent um, who had defenders and imitators and uh, uh, fellow travelers in the United States making not always the same arguments, but similar arguments about Marxism, about dialectical history, about atheism, um, about capitalism, that the conservative movement, broadly speaking, was created, created itself as a sort of spontaneous order with some direction from a bunch of important people like Buckley and Hayek and others to create an ideology that was an answer to that threat. And so I think that the, the right of the 1920s that, um, that Matt writes about, there was a right to be sure of one kind or another, but conservatism as a fleshed out worldview, as a fleshed out ideology really didn't exist. There were the elements of it did. Obviously, there were lots of religious people who thought defending religion was important, that religion should be a big part of public life. It's worth remembering that that argument was very much at home in um, the Democratic Party back then. You know, I mean, Woodrow Wilson was a devout Christian who I think he told the YMCA, um, and people forget, you know, the YMCA didn't start out 
as a place where they made, where flamboyant gay dudes wrote songs about it and dressed up like construction workers and Indian chiefs, it's, it's real meaning was, you know, the young men's Christian association and, um, you know, Woodrow Wilson gave some, I think it was to them, gave a speech about how their mission was to Christianize the whole world. It's really almost impossible to separate the religious components of progressivism from progressivism. In one of my books, I wrote, wrote about this, about how the American Economic Association, which is still the top tier professional economists organization in America, you know, I think half of the founders of it were social gospel ministers or something like that. And Richard Ely, or I, Ely or Ellie, um, I can never remember which, um, uh, who was the founder of the AEA, was also a huge part of the social gospel movement. He was also the founder of the Wisconsin School of Progressivism. Um, he was um, uh, a huge believer in this idea that through economics and public policy, we can create a Christian kingdom of heaven on earth. And um, I don't want to say the the words that will get David Bonson's ears burning, but uh, you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. So anyway... Obviously, there were free market capitalists prior to the rise of modern American conservatism, but they were they were scattered all over the place, and a lot of them were kind of apolitical. There were, you know, the the American Enterprise Association, which was the precursor to the American Enterprise Institute, was founded in the 1930s as essentially a response to the New Deal, and as Fate would happen. <laughs> Phyllis Schlafly worked for it, and um, uh, and you know the the fight for free enterprise and free trade um, was a you know it was basically a a um, there were sort of partisans in the hills all over the place on that. There wasn't really uh, the Republican Party wasn't the home of free trade, nor was the Democratic Party really the home for free trade. Um, free trade was, uh, this trade in general is a very complicated subject in the 19th century, but you wouldn't necessarily call it a conservative, you wouldn't have called it conservative. You know, it's worth, it's worth pointing out in that essay by Friedrich Hayek, um, which I talk about all the time, you know, why I'm not a conservative essay. You know, his basic point at the, you know, the first paragraph or the second paragraph, I think it's the first paragraph, you know, he points out that liberalism, sort of classical liberalism, um, was born as a response to monarchy, right? To the rule of throne and altar. And so liberalism was sort of a radical idea. It was a threat to the established order. It was, um, um, it was where all the sort of energy was in terms of the, what, you know, Tommy Lee Jones and Firebirds says the, having your head and your heart wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice. And it was only with the rise of socialism that liberalism all of a sudden seemed like a, for want of a better term, right wing thing, right? So liberalism was a left wing thing. Um, when I say liberalism, I mean free trade, uh, uh, you know, free markets, um, uh, individual liberty, democracy, um, free association, free expression, all of that stuff, right? All that sort of Bill of Rights stuff. Um, um, that was seen as left-wing, using these stupid right-wing, left-wing terms, right? Um, it, was the, it was the rebel alliance that believed in that stuff, whether it was in France or in England or anywhere else. And um, until socialism comes along. And then socialism becomes the hot thing for the quote-unquote left, Liberalism, all of a sudden, in part because of the success of liberalism of creating um, a vast middle class and um, and downgrading the power of the aristocracy in, in favor of um, the wealthy, um, liberalism becomes a right wing thing in Europe um, because um, it's now because liberalism is now essentially the status quo. And, and except for a few cranky reactionaries who want to, you know, bring back the divine right of kings and, and monarchical despotism, the right is essentially in favor of 
you know, democracy and, um, and, and commerce and all of that. And so the hot new radical thing is socialism. So, so that sort of context meant that, you know, a conservative in, a real conservative in Europe in the 19th century, never mind the 18th century, um, was a blood and throne conservative, right? It was a, a divine right of kings person. It was a, um, uh, what you would call in the 21st century sort of a reactionary. And, um, and a lot of this gets caught up in counter-enlightenment and enlightenment stuff, and we can't get deep into the weeds at 48 minutes into this thing. But um, Hayek's point was that in America, um, because we were a liberal order and we wrote it down in the Constitution, American conservatives had none of that European baggage and that they were trying to conserve um, a fundamentally liberal constitutional order. And, um, and that's why what it, to be an American conservative um, is different than being a conservative anyplace else and or almost anyplace else. There's been some convergence um, in the last, you know, century or so. And, um, and so my view remains, as I wrote in my first book, you know, conservatism, American conservatism is about more than uh, classical liberalism, but a American conservatism that doesn't conserve classical liberalism isn't worth conserving. And classical liberalism is this, is this civil association stuff that Oakshot is talking about. We don't pick winners and losers in industry here. We don't pick winners and losers among ethnic groups here or religious groups here. Um, and uh, I want to keep it that way. And so the people like this guy at the Federalist or the guys at Compact who want to get into power to pick winners and losers, um, who want to... Um, you know, use the state to punish their enemies. Um, I, I'm glad so many of them are honest about it, although I wish we lived in a country where um, some of those ideas were just simply taboo because I really don't think they really have a play. I'm not, I'm not talking about against the law. You can say whatever the hell you want, but like I mean that culturally taboo in the sense that, you know, I think we're a, healthy, a healthier country if people don't think they can make a name for themselves or make money or get attention or respect by talking about how we need to have a dictator, right? I mean, I just think that there's certain things, or bring back slavery, right? There's certain philosophical, moral questions that I think are dogmatically closed and that we're a healthier society if we don't revisit them. And I've had this argument with Charlie Cook a bunch of times who thinks everything is worth debating. And I think it's worth having rules that say you can debate anything you want, but at the same time, I think certain subjects just shouldn't be debated for the, for social health and for the construction of positive, uh, you know, social, you know, I hate the word hygiene, um, for the construction of good dogma. And so like nothing is served by letting someone come to a college campus and say, and talk about how the Holocaust was a hoax. And if you think that's censorship, fine, you know, but like you don't have a right to come to a campus and, um, and, and use campus facilities to give a speech. If you're booked to give the speech, and which I think would be a mistake, you shouldn't cancel it out of public outcry necessarily, right? Or um, if somebody uh, during a Q&A asks a question about the Holocaust being a hoax, you should let them ask the question and you should answer it, right? We can be reasonable people here about where we draw these distinctions because, again, ideology is really just a series of, of principles that are sometimes in tension and you have to have balancing tests about when, you know, to have this reaction or that reaction. And so anyway, but I think that there are certain things that should be sort of dogmatically closed. If we're going to have people talking about how we should use the state to punish our enemies and we should use the state to impose, um, our religious convictions on everybody. I'm very happy if they want to say they're not conservatives. And I wish them all the luck in the world. It's sort of like I, why I was so happy when um, Sora Bamari embraced the term pro-life New Dealer. Um, I don't think he got the joke about the fact that all the stuff they're proposing is sort of these hot new radical ideas have been <laughs> the, very, the very definition of establishment liberalism 
for nearly a century now. I mean, uh, like I've, I've actually spent a lot of time looking at how often the New Deal is invoked by Democrats in every generation. Um, I've written a lot of art, you know, so like the New Deal somewhere, like so someone wrote this and I tried to find it. It was a Claremont piece, a CRB piece years ago that said, um, he, and the author said he heard it on the radio, but couldn't give me a site. And I tried to track it down. So I've never really, once I tried to fact check it and couldn't, I haven't used it again. Um, but uh, it does, even if it's too good, it's, it, unfortunately it wasn't too good to check because uh, I checked, but it doesn't count. If true, it doesn't encapsulate so much of what the Democratic Party has been about for the last 80, 90 years. Nancy Pelosi allegedly was asked, you know, does the Democratic Party have any new ideas? And she said, um, I'll give you, you know, I, I can give you our new ideas in three words. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, if someone can find me where she actually said it, not just someone asserting it, I would love to have that. But uh, um, my basic argument about 20th century progressivism, it really begins obviously with, you know, him, with Woodrow Wilson. But, you know, FDR runs basically promising to recreate Wilson's war socialism on the domestic front to fight the Great Depression. I mean, he says so explicitly. Uh, most of the New Deal agencies were based upon uh, wartime agencies under Woodrow Wilson. The New Deal so fundamentally reshaped the nature of American progressivism, the nature of American government, basically every democratic. And so like, so first of all, the point is, is that this really goes back to William James. William James writes this famous essay called The Moral Equivalent of War, where he says war is great except for all the, the bloodshed and killing. And if we could just get the good stuff of war, what do we call the social benefits of war? Um, the idea that, uh, you know, because like men are more courageous, they're more self-sacrificing, uh, people give up their individual liberty during wartime for the greater good, and um, it brings out the heroic virtues in people, um, so if we could just come up with a moral equivalent to war that didn't involve murder or, or wholesale killing, um, that would be great, right? That's the long, that's a very short, rough, but I think fair synopsis of, of the idea of moral equivalent to war. And so uh, Woodrow Wilson actually had a real war, but um, the progressives who rallied around to the war effort were very cognizant that they could use the war effort to restructure society in ways that they wanted to um, along the sort of Jamesian lines. And then you have FDR, and they made a big deal about how FDR studied under William James at Harvard or something like that. There, they claimed some major connection, but it was all, it was basically just PR stuff. Um, but you had FDR, saying, okay, we're going to take, we're going to, we're going to fight the Great Depression as a moral equivalent of war enterprise. We're going to use the tools of war and the exhortations of war and the agencies of war to fight the Great Depression. I'm of the school that that made the Great Depression great and it made it last much longer. Um, but that's a different argument. I, I talked about that with Kevin Williamson recently. And then since then, basically every president has tried to do the same thing. Um, was it Truman had the fair deal? Um, Eisenhower had the great society. Eisenhower was the only um, other New Dealer president, really, other than, than FDR, and, or I guess Truman. Um, and, uh, and it was a, it, his desire to be FDR, right? And then you have, oh, and you had Kennedy with his new frontier, which was very moral equivalent of war -y. Um, uh, and then you have Jimmy Carter, who, um, he had some new something or other, new, I can't remember what he called it, but he, um, he literally said he wanted to make fighting the energy crisis, the moral equivalent of war. Um, and he wore a fetching sweater when he did it. Um, Clinton had his, was it the new covenant? I can't remember. Um, but he had his own version of that. And, um, and Obama had the new foundation, which was pretty explicitly um, a New Deal thing, you know. And then there's the Green New Deal. And it's all moral equivalent of war stuff, right? It is all using the state 
as an enterprise association to um, uh, have certain deliverables to make everybody fall in line, everybody work together. And um, um, anyway, so I, what I think is what I think is funny about it is the um, idea that all of these supposed you know radicals who read their all of this you know um, uh, you know obscure you know East European uh, radical crap and um, who, who think they're sort of you know, cutting edge Foucauldians and and critical theorists and 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 outside of of all sorts of like norms and traditions, as because they are the these clear eyed uh, minds on fire radicals. And I accuse them of being pro life New Dealers, and they're like, "Yes, that's it exactly." Um, you know, I just think it's hilarious, um, and I'm happy for it though. I mean, I, I really hope they they own it, um, and I hope. Whatever this guy at the Federalist comes up with in, in lieu of conservative, I hope they stick with that. I remember when Trump at a rally said, look, I don't want to, um, I'm not, he said something along the lines of, it was, I think it was in California. He said something along the lines of, uh, I know I'm not supposed to say this, but, you know, I'm not a conservative. I'm a nationalist. And I put a post in the corner back then saying, uh, in effect, <laughs> have fun with that Michael Brendan Doherty because, um, I was delighted for him to say that because it, it, that meant that whatever Trump came up with, with his agenda and his alleged ideology and his, um, alleged principles, um, nationalists would have to answer for it instead of conservatives. Unfortunately, it didn't stick. There were too many, um, there was too much letterhead with the word conservative on it at CPAC and other places. Um, I would love it if they renamed CPAC NPAC or TPAC for Trump PAC. Um, and, and Trump stopped talking about how he's a nationalist, um, at least at, you know, at scale, he didn't, he didn't continue with the message. Um, but I would love for, for people who don't actually believe in conservatism as I understand it. And as we've understood it since, you know, at minimum in the 1940s, um, I would love for those people to stop calling themselves conservatives. I would have much fewer arguments with them. And if they want to claim, lay claim to the um, sometimes failed, sometimes deeply flawed, often, if not always, not very conservative um, public policies of the 1930s and the New Deal as their new radical agenda to save America, go for it. I love it. Um, I wish they would stop you know, coming up with, you know, com using phrases like common good and just say they're social justice types. Um, if, if, if what they believe are, you know, culturally conservative versions of, of left-wing public policies, um, let them say so. That's great. Makes it much easier. You know, I can just um, hunt and I, I can search and replace for a few, you know, adjectives and old pieces about why the New Deal was problematic and worshiping at its altar is, is, is ridiculous. Um, I can just reprint those and, you know, uh, it, it makes my life so much easier. Anyway, um, I got to go. I'm getting a bunch of text messages and um, uh, I hope, again, I have no idea if this audio is going to be okay or not. Um, I hope it worked out. I apologize for it. It's just life. There are more important things in my life that got in the way and I, I'm hoping things will get a little bit more back to normal soon. Um, and, um, oh, I got a funny DM from somebody about the, the three year, uh, three years of the dispatch podcast with Steve. Um, actually I'll, I'll read it to you. I'll keep the guy's name out of it though. This is from a friend of mine. I'm work traveling and listen to your Steve podcast podcast. He used the term cadence to describe the frequency of something. He is lost to you at this point, isn't he? Too much exposure to business finance bros. If he starts asking you to circle back or uses phrases like, what's the ask? It may be hopeless. Um, I hate to say it, but I think Steve has used a lot of those phrases um, on me. And I have to say, I've it, some of that stuff has creeped into my language as well. I, mean, I think I told people about this, but back when we were 
um, launching the thing and raising money and talking to all these people. Um, I was, I came back from like New York, whatever. And I was talking about something having to do with podcast stuff. And I mentioned somebody and my wife who was, you know, at the kitchen sink said, who's that? And I said, oh, well, he's, he's really huge in the podcast space. And my, my wife turns off the water and looks at me and says, who are you? Um, it's true that some of that language stuff really does become kind of infectious. And I can't give Steve too much grief for it because I'm a victim of it too. But I, I thought it was funny. Um, anyway, don't know if I can do a G file today, but um, I'm, I'd like to if I can. And um, I'll see you next week.